y'all. We are back for another episode, and I am so excited. This is the first time we have two guests on the podcast today, and we are going to talk all about a different area of practice called developmental behavioral pediatrics and what developmental behavioral pediatricians do, when you would seek them out, and what type of support that they can provide. So today I have on the podcast with me Dr. Aisha Chima Hassan and Dr. Angelica Robles. And I'm so excited the two of them have partnered together to form Corellis Health, which is a one-stop shop for families with neurodivergent children, as well as helping healthcare professionals learn about neurodiversity, things like autism, ADHD, those neurodevelopmental disorders. So we're going to dive more into that and learn all about it. When I met them, I was so in line with their mission and just hearing how they are trying to shift the field and get better access and higher quality care for families, which Y'all know if you've been listening to the podcast for a while is something that I feel is so incredibly important. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodiversity affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast. And I developed the whole family approach to support your whole family and not just your autistic child. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well-being as a parent supporting your non-autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. Now let's get to talking about the field of developmental behavioral pediatrics, and welcome Aisha and Angelica. So excited to have you both here today. Let's first have each of you just do a real quick overview of who you are, how you got into this field, and and then we can also talk about how the two of you started collaborating together. I worked as a general pediatrician for many years in the ER as well as private practice. And then I had twins. I have four kids. I had twins. And then as they were growing older, I had also realized that there was such a large need when I was seeing children in the ED and in my general peds practice. And then I realized there were concerns with my twins as well that had initially come up with their speech and other things. And I really wanted to go into this field and I started my fellowship. I didn't go straight into it after my residency. So I went mid-career into fellowship at Brown where mm -hmm. I got my fellowship in development and behavior. And then I moved overseas and I worked internationally for five and a half years and then moved back to the U.S. Wow. I actually didn't know that. What a cool story too, to hear that you were working as a pediatrician first and then we're like, okay, let's take a shift in my career and really help these kids that are needing help. What about you, Angelica? 
for me, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor since I was a little girl. I didn't know I wanted to do pediatrics probably until medical school. And then I didn't know about developmental behavioral pediatrics until my general pediatrics residency training. Because before that, I thought maybe I'll do child neurology because I liked seeing kids that were all different and I loved learning about the brain. But then when I got to do my rotation neurology, I was like, this doesn't seem like it's for me. And when I did my developmental behavioral rotation, I was like, wow, this has everything I want. And this is really the group of kids and providers that I really love working with the most. And so that's when I actually got into knowing about this field, because I think it's such a small field. So many people don't know about it, like myself and now a developmental pediatrician or like Aisha, we don't know about it. And so I think that's part of the problem where there aren't enough of us because there is just not enough information out there. And what did you tell me when we initially met just to get to know each other? How many of all of you are there? I think there are about 757 developmental behavioral pediatricians that are currently practicing in the U.S., and about a third are in retirement age. And it's so fascinating, and we're going to get more into this in the episode, because often I hear a lot of pediatricians are like, you need to go see, they'll say, a developmental pediatrician or behavioral pediatrician, all this interchangeable language. Or, and again, we'll talk about this too, sometimes they'll refer to neurology, but it's like, Y'all are hard to find, you know? It's not like you can find one anywhere at any time. And so it makes sense too that there's such a long wait list as well. That leads me then, talk a little bit with Corrales Health. How did that come about for the two of you? I was working internationally and there's a big need, not only just in the U.S., but overseas as well. And I started using my limited resources to make connections for families because a, there's so few of us. B, what happens after you get a diagnosis? I was doing that internationally. And then because of my husband's work, we moved back. And I was going to set up a brick and mortar institute overseas. And then when I moved back, I was getting interviewed and looking at positions. And I realized that in the five and a half years that I had left the U.S., nothing had changed. The access to care was the same. The wait times were the same. And I felt like trying to bring about change in an academic institution would just take years. So I decided to do my own thing. The idea that I'd had internationally, I just changed it and made it pivot so that we could address the need at a larger scale because there's 19 million children with special healthcare needs and this data is like from 2020. So it was pre-pandemic and I feel that what the numbers that are there, there's so few of us and all of us are burning out that something had to change. And that's when I was traveling and I met up with Angelica. We had both trained at Brown University together. She was junior to me. And then we met again and we started talking. Like I just said, we met in fellowship training. She went off and did her international thing. And I started practice in North Carolina. I was in practice here for a few years and I loved what I did and I felt like it was really important, but I just felt like I couldn't make that change like Aisha was describing. It was just hitting a wall with everything I wanted to do differently or not being able to spend the time I wanted with families. The wait time was increasing because of the pandemic and all the stressors of that. 
And I just felt defeated because I felt like I couldn't help these kids and their families fast enough. And I just felt like I wasn't doing enough for them and I was failing them as their physician. So I knew I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to leave this field because of how important it is. And again, I truly do love it that I decided to do something different. And then when Aisha and I met up around that time, we both shared the same feelings and beliefs and we're like, why don't we just do something together and merge our ideas? And so that's what really came to create Carla's Health and the concept behind that. That's awesome. And I love how you tied that in too, because I'm sitting here imagining, okay, we're telling our stories. What does it mean for you as a parent, you as a listener? And I think that's exactly it is sometimes in these institutions or with current systems, health insurance often does this quite often, where it restricts us as practitioners, as clinicians, to be able to do what we truly want to do. That's frustrating as a parent too, that sometimes you're like, I need more and I cannot get more. And one of the things too, as clinicians we're facing is how do we start to navigate this so we can provide the highest quality of care. And that's immediately why I connected so much with Aisha and Angelica is this similar mission to be like, we need to shake up the system. And over time, hopefully as great minds meet, we continue to see more and more progress in the entire system, but at least being able to make impact with the families we're working with means so much to us. Now let's take a step back. Let's talk about what is the field of developmental behavioral pediatrics and how does a parent know if they should come see you or not? You know, we're medical doctors. We go to medical school, which can be four or five years, depending on which country you're training in. We do all the exams and then we go to do residency in general pediatrics. We get board certified in general pediatrics. And then on top of that, we do an additional three years of training in development and behavior, which is a fellowship. So it's a subspecialty. We see children with disabilities. We see children that are neurodivergent. And we are trained over three years in this specialty by professors who have been working for many, many years so that we can actually do the best and provide quality care to their specific population. I would say that a parent should come and find us if they feel like their child is not reaching what they would expect them to reach at that point or developing as they would hope or expect them to. I know you can't compare kids, but see, you get that intuition maybe that you need to do something more or at least to get your child assessed just to make sure you're not missing anything or that you're supporting them and understanding them the best that you can. A parent always has that intuition, so I would go with that. But really, if you had any developmental concerns or really challenging behaviors where like, I don't know what's going on. What is this? Is there something more I need to get a diagnosis for? Again, not just to get a label or just that diagnosis alone, but the understanding of your child and then to know how can I help them? What therapy might be helpful or what do I do in school to support them or tell their school team to do to support them the best that they can? Sometimes they might talk to their general pediatrician or primary care provider, and sometimes they may know some information, but not enough because, again, they don't have the same 
specialization as we do. And so let's say even complex ADHD, or sometimes again, they're hitting a wall with what therapies they are doing. They're not seeing the progress that they would expect or anticipate, then that's when I think they should see us. And I know it can vary, but how much education is the average pediatrician getting about development and behavior? Unfortunately, not very much. So in most pediatric residencies where that's all you do is pediatrics for three years, you get maybe one or two months of development and behavior. That's it. So that's the only month where you might see a child being assessed for autism or having a diagnosis made of autism or observing some of those things or how do they look at developmental milestones. So that's a lot in just that one or two months where there's no way you can look at everything and there's no way you're going to know what to look for for autism or even ADHD. The second most common mental health disorder in children or concern is ADHD. And there's very limited education in that even. So I feel like that's a major need. And unfortunately, it's just not being done. I mean, I was working as a general pediatrician, and I realized that this training was lacking for me. 40 to 50% of the kids that I would see would have concerns related to their development or their behavior. And I felt that it, it wasn't enough my training that I'd had those one to two months in the entire three years. Yeah, that was always my understanding is that it wasn't a lot. And we think about systems issues. We are failing pediatricians in that regard, given how common this is. And I think it's just important to keep in mind your pediatrician hopefully will collaborate with you to get you referred to the right people. And I often know there's this wait and see approach or, you know, oh, they're just a boy, or they looked at me, it can't be autism. I mean, these are verbatim quotes. I'm sure you guys hear all the time. I hear all the time. And so also not being afraid to advocate that if they're saying, no, there's no need for further evaluation, but you have that intuition to be able to advocate for that because their knowledge on this topic just might not be as broad as needed in order to really provide that diagnostic clarity and be able to direct you to the right next best steps. I completely agree because even as a pediatrician myself with my kids, when I had concerns about my child and my pediatrician had said, oh no, they're twins, they're boys, they're being exposed to multiple languages. It's okay. We can take the wait and see approach. But it's hard. So it was hard for me as a professional. And I can understand how hard it can be for other families as well. But I agree with what you're saying. I think parents know their children best. And I think it's important for you to be able to advocate for your child. And you have concerns and getting connected to see someone or even getting a referral to early intervention. It's not going to hurt your child. It'll only help them if anything does come up or there's some delays that they identify. And their brains are growing and they're evolving. And I think it's important to get those services and those therapies in as soon as possible. Absolutely. I talk about that a lot on the podcast is 
trusting your gut instinct. I find in my clinical work, this is not a true data-driven number, but I say like 95% of parents that come in having concerns, they are spot on. And it's that rare percent, which does happen. Maybe it's just anxiety and worrying about every small thing that does happen. It's not impossible, but that's more the minority than the majority. So really following that instinct can help you to get support for your child sooner if you are facing any of that incongruence with your pediatrician. If you are hitting a wall, I think it's okay to seek a second opinion. Coming from another physician, it's okay to do that because sometimes they may not listen or they may not understand where you're coming from. They may not see what you're seeing. So it's okay to look elsewhere. Absolutely. And I even believe that's true of the evaluation itself, that if you do see a provider and something isn't feeling in alignment, whether that's they didn't diagnose and you really still think there's something going on, or sometimes too, it's like the process is so rushed and I don't really know if they got a good sense of my child. It's always fine. It's your right as a parent to be able to you know, seek out that second opinion. Can we touch on really quickly the field of neurology and kids being referred to neurologists and when that's needed? And I know some of them assess autism, but how do parents navigate that if they're staying in the medical field? And we'll talk in a second too about the difference between developmental behavioral pediatrics and psychology, but how do parents differentiate what path to go down? Because I feel like those are often grouped together is my take on all of it and what I see. Real quick, just a brief interruption, because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-based neurodiversity-affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. So there's a large need. There's so many kids. One in 36 are being diagnosed with autism. There's six months to two-year wait times. And the gap has to be filled by other health professionals. So if they can't see a psychologist or they cannot see a developmental pediatrician, who are the next people that can do the diagnosis or can help out. Psychologists and developmental pediatricians are trained. We spend years in our training and it's not that the neurologists cannot see these kids, but they're the next step and they're the ones that step in and can see these kids. Neurologists can see them. Child and adolescent psychiatrists can see them. There's some pediatricians have gone in and done some workshops and courses and they're doing the diagnosis as well. We all have to partner together to help these families get connected to therapies. That's what I feel that I think it's important for that to happen. I think that's such an important viewpoint of where can you be seen the quickest and where can you get answers so that you can start getting support for your child. By default though, just for parents' knowledge, I'm all about informed consent. Ultimately, parents should follow their instinct, make the decision that's best for their family. But So parents know, to your knowledge, is neurology trained in things like autism and ADHD and these neurodevelopmental disorders? Or 
Are there also subspecialties like there are in pediatrics, the way that developmental behavioral pediatrics is? I think it really depends on the interest, honestly, of that neurologist, because I don't think they get as much training specifically like we do in developmental pediatrics. So they'll look at the DSM-5 or they'll see kids and they'll get that clinical sense over time to be able to make the diagnosis, but there's not specific training. So it may be that a neurologist is comfortable doing that, but they're not going to have the training like some pediatricians might do that as well. Even some child adolescent psychiatrists, because they're not as trained in it, don't feel comfortable making autism diagnosis and still will refer to us or to a psychologist. So I think it really varies in these other specialties where it's even hard then to find who is comfortable or feeling like they're able to do that. And are there any subspecialties? There's neurodevelopmental behaviorists, pediatricians as well. Those are the ones that have more of a neurology background, but also do some development in behavior training. Neurologists see adults and there's child neurology. And child neurology can have specialties in epilepsy or other subspecialties as well, where they can just subspecialize or be more of an expert in. I think that all makes a lot of sense. And I think that's the thing is all of us got into this field because we chose to get additional training in things like autism and ADHD and really specialize. There's different routes for that specialization. The route that you can go down, though, is if you can find a psychologist who specializes in autism, because that's the other thing, being in this field, I have many amazing, talented peers who know nothing about autism. I elected to become a specialist in this area. So that's also something to keep in mind. So a psychologist with specialty in autism, in these neurodevelopmental disorders, in neurodivergence, or a developmental behavioral pediatrician, those might be your first starting points of, can I find someone in my area to work with or via telehealth like all of us do here? What would you say your standard evaluation looks like? So we are offering two one-hour telehealth visits plus care coordination for the initial consultation. Previously, when working in regular developmental behavioral pediatrics in an office setting, it varies from place to place because we're limited by the institute that we're working for and what they feel is the right way to do or practice this field. So, yeah, I think what is different now is that we can have more ability to say how much time we can spend with the families and the children what we can do before the visits to gather information so that we have more time during the visit. And the care coordination, I think, is really great because a lot of the times we didn't have time to support the families after we had a consultation. So then we would say what we would recommend, but it's so hard to get all that in an hour or an hour and a half. You can't do everything. Take a history, observe a child, spend time with the child, make a diagnosis, score everything give a diagnosis and recommendations. It's a lot to pack in an hour and a half or just an hour. And I get where families come, they feel like, yes, it was so fast because that's the only time that we're allowed to have. And we feel like we're not doing enough in that setup too, which is why we're trying to spend more time with them now and then provide additional coordination afterwards to help the families as well. And the other thing we've done is we're utilizing technology 
to make sure that a lot of our work is streamlined, not only before the visit, but also during the visit. So that A, we can spend more time answering questions and concerns that the family will have during the visit. And also we will have less note writing after the visit as well, so that we can spend time with our families and be able to decompress or step away from our work, which can be stressful and take a toll. We need space as providers. I think this sometimes too, we don't always think about our medical system, but the more that we can have some space for ourselves, the higher quality of care that you get as a parent in a family, which I think is important. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about, okay, say a child is autistic, would there be reasons that they would still come and see you and work with you in that lens? I think the cases that would be good to connect with us or those families that should connect us with us when they already have a diagnosis would be more like if they don't know where to go for help or they need resources or they feel like there's something more going on because there are a lot of other things that can happen when you have a diagnosis of autism. You can have anxiety, ADHD, learning concerns. So I think sometimes they just feel like they need more support. And again, just need to understand their child better because you can have that diagnosis and know what to do with that, but you still need more help a lot of the times. And like we said, sometimes a pediatrician doesn't really know what to do next. And so that's where we could help check in with the families or even help pediatricians partner with them to say, hey, this is what I would recommend for this family, or maybe we can look into this or consider these medications, if that would be helpful. We all need to work together and collaborate. And in a neurodivergent child's life, there are key transition points that are really important for families to be able to be aware of, to know what to expect, what's going to happen next. And that is when I think it's really important for them to connect with somebody, either a, a developmental pediatrician or a psychologist, that they know what to expect and be ready for it, to be able to provide that support to their child. Just to state this explicitly, because I've had parents ask me this, it's not if they are working with you that they would then stop seeing their pediatrician. Is that correct? That's yeah. correct. We've had okay. parents ask us that too, because we're pediatricians technically, but we don't do all of the other primary care wellness visits or sick visits. And then I'm curious, actually, on my end, in an evaluation, what would you say some of your standard recommendations? And obviously, I know it varies, but some key ones that you are always recommending to families if you're diagnosing autism. For me, what I always do is it's always individualized for every child, obviously. So I really like to think about what are some things that the family has as goals, what are things we want to work on for the child to make life easier. But really school, I think it's a big one, regardless whatever the needs are or the strengths are. I always want the school to know that this child has been diagnosed with autism because they need to support that child and understand that child if they don't know about that. Because a lot of the times, if there is not that knowledge or understanding they're just going to be misunderstood or labeled as a bad kid or just not do as well as they could or not be as happy as they could be in the school setting. So that's something I always do. What about you, Aisha? So it varies. So if it's a younger child under the age of three, their needs and who they will be connected with would be different. At that time, the resources can be through the state and be private. 
again, even for the school age children, what Angelica said, schools should know they should be partnering with families. Families should be getting the support through care coordination to advocate for their child, make sure they get what the education system, because by law, by right, that they should be getting that help through the school. And then as they get older, their needs are changing again. So how can you support them? And it, it changes a little. Maybe, you know, you'd want them to have more social groups as they start hitting the adolescent age or as they go from adolescence into adulthood. Will they go to college? If they will go, where will they go? So all of these questions need to be answered and the needs and change and vary from child to child. Just to throw some out there more on the medical side of things. So things like genetic testing, if there is a co-occurring medical condition and medication. Where do those fall within your realm of what you guys are usually overseeing versus referring to other specialists? So genetic testing is something that I talk about and I say it is something that has been recommended. However, it's optional. It does help us get more information, understanding. A lot of the times it comes back normal and so it doesn't give us any more information, but sometimes it can. And so I do offer that to families. In terms of medication, there is no medication to treat autism. If there is um, ADHD or anxiety, that's really significant. Maybe then we talk about those specific medications to target those concerns, but no other medications. In terms of sleep, again, if that is something that they're concerned about, we talk about strategies primarily and maybe think about other natural things we can do first. In terms of other specialists they would need to see, I wouldn't recommend a neurologist for every child to get any brain imaging or blood work done unless there was a concern. If there were some seizures or motor concerns, let's say physically they're having some challenges and they may need to get imaging for those reasons as well. Aisha, any thoughts from you? I completely agree. This is what we would do. And we would be partnering with the general pediatricians as well for the medication. We don't have to see everyone for every single visit if everything is stable. Because again, we are trying to help their wait lists get shorter. The medication thing is interesting. There are no medications for autism. And a lot of kids are on various medications that are kind of coming into play. Even sometimes I'll see ADHD medications, SSRIs, without maybe co-occurring disorders where it's part of the autism presentation, so to speak. It's interesting to navigate. Maybe they're trying different behavioral approaches, aren't seeing the results that they can start with you inquiring about medication or the other option would be psychiatry typically at that point, would you say? Absolutely, yes. So if they're doing the strategy that's not working out, then yes, they should probably see us or a child adolescent psychiatrist to see, is there something more that we need to target with the medication? Because like you said, I think it's hard if people don't know what they're treating and they may just try all these different medications and it may not be as effective, right? So that's where I think in our training, we try to use medication only when it's really necessary and the least amount, but we want to know what we're treating. And so we really try to get into what is going on and target that be before we do those things. It's so interesting reading the research. So I used to be in research and really specialize emotion dysregulation in autistic children and how much medications are prescribed. And a study found is 
there is an 11 times more likelihood of polypharmacy, so being on a bunch of medications in autistic youth than non-autistic youth. I talked about it on a separate podcast episode. Personally, I love that approach of let's try to really understand what's going on first. And I think this is where your background and training really lends to understanding, you know, if medication is part of the solution, what medications would be best because of that more global picture of what autism is. So before we wrap up this episode, we've talked about quite a lot to just giving a tour of the field of developmental behavioral pediatrics. And we talked about this at the start of the episode, but overall, what changes as a company are you all working to make and really advocate for? Because I think this can give parents some hope of where the field is going. So we're trying to create a platform, a one-stop shop for families to have connections, superior care and education, and not just families with neurodivergent and disabled children, but also the healthcare professionals. There is no one place where all of us will partner. Everybody seems to be working in silo. We'll all have our own societies and groups and niche areas where we're all working. But I want families to be able to, A, if they have a question or a concern, to be able to get that information and B, find anyone that they feel would be the right fit for them through this network. It could be a speech therapist, occupational therapist, child and adolescent psychiatrist or a psychologist or a clinical social worker. I want that information for families to be able to choose themselves. And then we as Corrales Health Providers, we're also available. If they choose to, they can ask us for a consultation and get connected to one of our providers. But the flexibility and the accessibility is what I want available. Because as a parent, I would want to be able to get that information. Sometimes parents don't even know that their child has an issue. Where do they go from there? We'll link your website in the show notes so parents can easily go and navigate and learn more about you. But even as a provider, I'm excited about this too, because sometimes I'm recommending this and then parents trust us at this point and they're like, who do you recommend? And it's hard as even providers in this field, because I think you're so right. We're so siloed and doing our own thing. And I even find this on the therapy end of things. It's like you have your speech therapist, you have your occupational therapist, you might have a psychologist, you might have an ABA therapist, you might have a PT. Are all of them working together collaboratively? And sometimes parents are hearing from one provider, well, you should be doing this. And then another provider is almost contradicting that, which is so hard. And I think, yeah, we need to have more of this care coordination aspect and knowing how to all work together because we all have unique skill sets that really blend quite beautifully. I completely agree with what you're saying. And I was really excited when we reached out and spoke to you for the first time. I was like, oh, somebody who values and is passionate about this feel and about the care that she's providing to her patients. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's so fun to be able to think outside of the box as providers, which doesn't always happen. And to be able to connect with like-minded individuals felt really, really exciting. Before we wrap up the episode, anything that we haven't talked about, anything we're missing that you were like, I want to be able to share this. If any families are interested, we are open for consultations in several states right now via telehealth for any children two to 10 years old that have any developmental concerns. So we are here 
and just reach out to us if you need anything. We're here to help. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll also go ahead and link your Instagram. All right, y'all. Well, that is a wrap for this episode. I just wanted to give you a different perspective. I talk about the field of psychology quite a lot on this podcast and the support you can get in that realm. And also realizing there's so many different amazing providers to support your autistic child or if you have concerns about your child's development. And so hopefully this gave you a little more understanding of what the field of developmental behavioral pediatrics is. So if you hear that term or you get referred to one, you have more confidence and more understanding going into that appointment exactly what it is. Thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here. And I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye y'all.